So if you, uh, if you missed, missed our Ash Wednesday service two weeks ago, you really missed something special. Because not only was it the beginning of this holy season that we're in, but it was also Valentine's Day. And so we used that... Wor- Could you turn me down just, just a tiny bit? We used that worship uh, time to celebrate not only God's love for His bride, the church, but we celebrated God's gift of marriage by having some couples renew their vows... And some get married for the very first time. And going through all that kind of made me think uh, about this story about a little five-year-old boy who was, he was in a family member's wedding. And as, as the wedding procession made its way down the aisle, this little boy would take two steps. He would stop. He would turn and, and face the crowd. And he would put his hands up like claws and roar. And then, then he'd take two more steps. He faced the other side of the aisle and did the same thing. So he'd take, take two steps, stop, and roar. He'd take two steps, stop, and roar. And he did this all the way down to the altar. And by the time he got there with the rest of the wedding party, the entire church was rolling with laughter. But the little boy got so upset that he started crying. So his mom came and got him, and she took him back to her seat, and she said, Honey, what were you doing? And he said, Mom, I just wanted everybody to know that I was the ring bearer. <laughs> Burump, bump, right? Okay, that wasn't a very... I'm sorry. <laughs> the ring bearer, you get it? Okay. All right. And it's a funny story, but you know, if you think about it, for this little boy, it was kind of like a game of charades. It was almost like the little boy was asking the crowd, Who am I? Who am I? It's one of the most important questions that could ever be asked, and one that each one of us has to answer. And in our text for this morning, it's a question that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked to his disciples. So we're going to turn to our lectionary reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Mark writes, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were there walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you're one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You're the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to tell him that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples, and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Amen. Did you guys notice how the whole world today seems to revolve around opinion polls? I mean, just pick up a magazine, turn on the news, or spend five minutes on Facebook, and you will either see the results of a poll, or you'll be asked to participate in one. And in today's gospel lesson, Jesus and his disciples fit right in by conducting a first-century messianic opinion poll but it wasn't just to assess the mood of the day it wasn't something to do to fill a magazine article or a a tv spot 
Jesus asked his question not out of mere curiosity, but because the answer is so very important. And the issue that he's raising is not a matter of opinion, but a matter of objective reality, because everything that matters hinges on your answer to that question. Today's gospel reading, you know, is one of those, one of those key texts in the New Testament, and it really serves as a turning point in Jesus' ministry. So this is a really big deal that we're looking at today, because up to here, Jesus has had a public ministry of teaching and healing But from this point onwards, he concentrates progressively more and more on teaching the disciples alone. Teaching them exactly what being the Messiah is going to mean for him. This is a big deal. Even the geography of the incident is significant. If you recall, much of Jesus' ministry was done around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But now today he sets off on this this journey to the far north of the country, specifically toward the city of Caesarea Philippi was a brand new Greek-speaking city that was built during Jesus' own lifetime by Herod Philip, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And it was as far north, really, as Jesus ever traveled, going into what we now call the Golan Heights. And its attraction for most folks that were headed there was that it was a pilgrimage center for idol worship, was filled with temples to the classical pagan religions, And towering over all of them was the new temple to the god-emperor Caesar, where citizens were required to enter once a year, place some incense on a burning altar, and proclaim, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And Jesus uses this setting to test those closest to him about who he really is in contrast to the background of these completing truth claims of foreign gods and the attraction of gilded idols. And it's here that Jesus asks the question that must have been on all of their minds. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And the answer to the question is just as important today as it was over 2,000 years ago, and we cannot afford to get it wrong. We can't afford to get it wrong. Like the, the, the fourth grade teacher who was giving her her pupils a beginning lesson in logic. And she says, okay, folks, here's the situation. A man's standing in a boat, and he's in the middle of the river, and he's fishing, but he loses his balance. He falls in and starts splashing around, yelling for help. Now his wife hears the commotion and knows he can't swim, so she runs frantically down to the bank. Now, why do you think she ran down to the bank? That nobody answered. Until one little girl sheepishly raised up her hand and said, was it... To withdraw all of his savings? And now today in in our journey through Mark, the disciples are faced with a simpler situation like being in a class when the teacher asks a very important question and they want to seem intelligent so they blurt out an answer. Not always the right one, but an answer nonetheless. And so our Lord turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say, oh, they think you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, maybe Jeremiah. Or they think maybe you're one of the other prophets. And then more directly, he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And now you have to figure the disciples had surely debated that question among themselves over and over again. Is Jesus a prophet like we've had before in our history? Or is he more than a prophet? 
And when the question was asked, you have to wonder if there wasn't one of those, you know, those uncomfortable silence moments in a group when you can hear a pin drop. One of those times when nobody wants to speak up until Peter blurts out, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. You know, we have to stop there, though, and ask, what exactly did Peter mean when he said that? What did he mean when he said Jesus was the Messiah? Did he really understand exactly what he was saying when he made that famous declaration? Because, you know, in the political situation of the day, the Jews interpreted those messianic prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah as meaning that God would send a new king, but it would be an earthly king. It would be a leader who would deliver them from the power of Rome So the people's hope was primarily political. And because of that, now it would be basically Jesus' task in the second half of his ministry to teach the disciples that his goals were not political, but spiritual. And in the verses at the end of today's reading, Jesus explains that his vocation as Messiah means he's going to be put to death. But he's going to rise again on the third day. Now that should have been exciting news, but for Peter, that was his breaking point. That was just too much for him to accept. Too much for him to accept that Jesus had to be put to death. And so he, in his own mind, thinks he's going to take Jesus aside and straighten him out, right? But you know, that had to be quite an emotional roller coaster for Peter that day, right? It's like spiritual whiplash. And I think we have to have a little bit of sympathy for him. I mean, Peter was only expressing what his people had believed for over 700 years. And it's an enormous leap from believing that the Messiah is going to bring political freedom and greatness to your people to then believe that the Messiah is going to suffer a humiliating death in order to bring men and women into a new fellowship with the Father. But Jesus is saying, Peter, I've got bigger plans than that. I've got bigger plans than you can possibly fathom. Because as we've said before, what the Jews thought they wanted would have only lasted for this lifetime. Right? Political freedom and greatness for Judea would have only been of temporary significance and hardly anything that you would call a foundation for a new people of God. Because the Messiah, the Messiah in the truest sense of its meaning, the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he accomplished through his death and resurrection is far more significant than the temporary gain that they looked for. And you know, we're actually going to see that, a little more of that in Matthew's account of this event. It kind of replows a little bit of the same territory but he adds some new information that i want you to see so matthew 16 uh, beginning in verse 13 when jesus came to the region of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is well they replied some say john the baptist some say elijah and others jeremiah or one of the other prophets and then he asked him but who do you say that i am and peter answered you're the messiah the son of living god And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Matthew kind of adds some more information here, right? He had some more to what Mark didn't tell us about this exchange between Peter and Jesus concerning the foundation of the church. And I think it's really interesting when you remember, as we've talked about before, that the whole gospel of Mark that we started with was written 
from the sermons and stories of the Apostle Peter about the time that he spent with Jesus. Because remember, Mark was Peter's traveling companion, and he recorded what Peter taught. And evidently, Peter never mentioned this conversation, or else he was too humble to have wanted it to be included. Either way, he didn't make a big deal out of it, but Matthew includes it here. And this passage has been the cause of a lot of debate. Debate over whether the rock on which Christ will build his church is the Apostle Peter, or whether it's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Is that the rock that the church is going to be built on? Because in all honesty, the, the grammatical construction in the verse allows for either view. And if you look at it, Jesus here appears to be playing on words. He says, you are, you are Peter, you're Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. And since Peter's name means rock and Jesus is going to build his church on a rock, it appears like Christ is linking the two together. And God did use Peter greatly in the foundation of the church, didn't he? Right? It was Peter who first proclaimed the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It was Peter who was also the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So in a sense, Peter was the rock foundation of the church. But the other interpretation of the rock is that Jesus was referring not to Peter, but to Peter's confession in verse 16 when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because, you know, Jesus up to now had never explicitly taught his disciples, had never taught Peter and his disciples the fullness of his identity. And Jesus recognized that God had sovereignly opened Peter's eyes and revealed to him who Jesus was. And his confession of Christ as Messiah just blurted out as a heartfelt declaration of personal faith in Jesus Christ. And it is this personal faith in Christ that's the hallmark of the true Christian. Because those who have placed their faith in Christ, as Peter did, are the church. We are the church. And their confession is the rock foundation that that church is founded on. And you know, the rest of the New Testament goes on to make that really clear, that Christ alone is both the foundation and the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, And he... Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In everything. So it would be a mistake based on the totality of the word to think that Jesus would ever give that role to Peter. And, and so, yes, there, there is a sense in which, you know, Peter played a foundational role in the building of the church, but this, the role of primacy... The role of head of the church is for Christ alone and is never assigned to Peter. In fact, Christ is called by Peter the chief cornerstone in one of his letters. If you get a chance, we're going to be uh, studying First Peter chapter 2. And he writes for, in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who have believed, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone, that's Christ. And you know, the cornerstone of any building is what the whole is anchored to, and Christ declared himself to be that cornerstone. And Peter agreed that that was true in his own writing. But even though that we've looked at that, that still leaves Jesus' question of the day hanging in the air, doesn't it? Who do you say that I am? And his classic 
book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis addressed that idea of Jesus being who he said he was, and I want to share a piece of it with you. He wrote, What I'm trying here to prevent is anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And he continues, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And ever since Jesus has come into the world, we have been forced to deal with who he is and why he matters. You know, the early church endured persecution because of their testimony of Jesus in the face of the worship of Caesars. The church in India today suffers persecution because of their testimony of Jesus in the face of Hinduism with its worship of literally millions of gods. And even right here in America, even right here at home, the church is confronted daily in the face of cultural norms and political correctness because of our testimony of Jesus Christ and our desire to follow Him. And you know, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, our text today can be of great comfort because remember Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And that verse is a comfort because in every age, the true church of Christ has been under attack. And there is a sense in which we can know that no matter what the world or the flesh, or the devil throws at us that Christ is our strong tower. But you know, I really want you to take a closer look at what that verse actually says. Because what Jesus said is that the gates of Hades will not prevail. That they'll not prevail. Now from the earliest days of warfare right up to today, gates are used as defensive measures, not offensive ones, right? You put up a gate to protect yourself. Gates protect, they don't attack. So the real beauty of what Christ is saying here is that, no, we don't have to fear an attack from the kingdom of darkness, but rather it should be afraid of the kingdom of Christ and of its king. Right? The gates of Hades should tremble at the kingdom of Christ and at its king because he is coming. And when he comes back, it's going to be a full frontal attack. And the strongholds of the devil don't stand a chance when the people of God go out into the world to reclaim what's his. Because, brothers and sisters, when you and I proclaim God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, eyes are opened, hearts are changed, chains are broken, walls of resistance come crashing down, and the spiritually dead are raised to life and set free to live for the Master and to live for what matters. You know, John Piper said, the opposite of wasting your life is to live by a single, soul-satisfying passion for the supremacy of God in all things. He said, if you want to live a life that counts... If you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach to the end of the earth and roll into eternity, you have to know one great, all-embracing thing and be set on fire, just like Paul was, to declare, I have decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior who says, My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. And this morning, if you're hearing the voice of the shepherd, you may be hearing him say to you, Who do you say I am? Who am I to you? And the beautiful part is that God the Holy Spirit provides the answer. He prays for us when we don't know what to pray. Because you see, brothers and sisters, I can't change your mind. I can't change your heart. There's not a pastor or a teacher in the world that can do that. But when the Spirit speaks, and I pray He's speaking to your hearts today, you can say with confidence in the words of Peter and of the church, as they have said in every age, Lord Jesus, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And I want to live for You forever. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would send Your Spirit today, Father, to... Uh, do just as we've said, to open eyes, to uh, open hearts, to take out those hearts of stone uh, and replace it with a heart of flesh, that you would just move among your people, uh, that your voice would go forward and those who are yours that would come to you. And so we ask, Father, uh, that you would be with all of us now as we go out into the world, that you would uh, allow us to take advantage of the great privilege that we have to share the gospel with everyone that we meet. And we thank you, Father, for all that you're about to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.